Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, delighted to have back in the studio none other than Seneca co-founder and real-life action hero, Jeremy Goldcorn, <laughs> the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm doing very well. It's very nice to be back in Beijing. Oh, good, good, good. Uh, I'm really excited about our live show tomorrow night, too. That'll be good. Yeah. So, um, I have a question for you. Yes. What do you, sir, Jeremy Goldcorn, sir... Apis Apis Pekinensis, or the Peking Swift, and certain avaricious Chinese gold and diamond miners all have in common. <laughs> a riddle. I, the third one is con- co- 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 a bit confusing. What do we have in common? You've all migrated to and or from Beijing to southern Africa. Ah, I see. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Ornithologists <laughs> have discovered, actually, the Swifts of Beijing, the, 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 the Yuan, or uh, the Lou Yen. Uh, they actually leave Beijing, as we all know, in late July each year, and they fly, as it turns out, without actually ever landing. They fly west across Central Asia and then across um, Southwest Asia and the Saudi Peninsula and, and even end, um, uh, and they, they, they go through the Rift Valley of Africa and all the way to South Africa and Namibia, something like 16,000 miles, like, what's that? that's like 26,000 kilometers, uh, earning them, I guess, platinum mileage cards and first-class no, first, 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 uh, first, first class seating upgrades every time. So today we're actually we're joined by Terry Townsend, who's director of EcoAction, a new Chinese organization dedicated to environmental education for schools and ecotourism in China. He's also founder of Birding in Beijing, or Birding Beijing rather. Um, so we're, uh, I'm, you know, since this is a topic that I know precious little about, and and you, sir. Mr. Goldcorn know a lot about it. I I only have a couple of questions, but I want to really hand off to you. But first, um, let's 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 talk about Swifts. Let's talk about the yen. Um, they're so iconic, are they not? I mean, the name of Beijing, right? Yen. You know this pijo that we're well. Okay, usually we have the shitty. Just we got Japanese beer. We have today. Japanese yeah. beer today. Keep that quiet. Sumimasen, sumimasen. <laughs> but uh, we, we we actually um, usually are drinking Yanjing in here. But uh, welcome, Terry. You've had welcome, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank here, you cheers, cheers, cheers. And it's good to be back here um, with Sinica. Yeah, it's good to have you back. So I don't think you mentioned Kaiser that Terry has actually been. A yes, guest of course. The show, yeah, the yeah. birds of Beijing yeah. in the air they fly in. That's right. right. That was, a, that was a, a great episode. One that I unfortunately was not present for. So, I mean, Terry, uh, let's actually start, before we start about this, uh, talk about Swifts, I, I'd actually, I'm curious about your new gig at EcoAction, because uh, I was interested to see this as new since the last time I saw you. What, what is it? What are you doing there? Well, it's a, it's a new, very new organization um, in China that, um, as Kaiser said, is focused on uh, education for the environment, um, in particular for schools, uh, and also sustainable ecotourism. Um, and one of the things that, that I'm working on at the moment is an environmental curriculum 
um, that is going to be piloted in some Beijing schools. That's um, great. Yeah, and we're working with uh, the Chinese government uh, to do this. Um, we have their approval, and we're just about to start piloting it with three uh, Beijing schools. And the idea is that um, if it goes well, which we expect it to, that we can then roll it out um, more widely in Beijing and then further afield. Um, and I think this is absolutely necessary because the environment is almost absent uh, in the standard Chinese curriculum. Um, so it's a big gap, and it's one that we're hoping to fill uh, at least partly through this through this organisation. Is this going to be in uh, primary schools, or is it going to be in secondary? Or um, we're focusing on secondary schools okay. to start with, um, but the idea is that we will cover uh, primary schools as well. Excellent, excellent. And it's a Chinese-founded NGO, is it? Yes, yeah. it's um, founded by um, a young lady, very dynamic young lady called Lu Peng, um, and so I'm partnering with her with this venture. So we're and we 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 don't have a lot of funding at the moment, but we're we're putting in some proposals to to big funders to hopefully get some. Well, we have a lot of those kind of people as our <laughs> listeners, so I'm please sure uh, get in touch yeah. with Terry. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We won't take your money, but we will gladly uh, uh, have you send it to Terry and to uh, EcoAction. Um, you know, I think pe- listeners to this show might be pardoned for thinking that the actual official bird of Beijing, uh, they conflate it with the official bird of Seneca, which, of course, is the, the azure-winged magpie, which is our favorite bird. It's it's a uh, uh, But w- what about what about the swallow? Uh, okay, first of all, let's. What are swallows and what are swifts, and why do I get the two confused? I mean, yen, I guess, means both, right? Yeah, it is often confused. Um, they do look similar right. uh, in, in some ways. Um, swallows are a little smaller, um, but swifts are, are all dark, mm. um, a bit larger, and they're they're the ones that scream in these screaming parties um, at dusk around some of the the major monuments um, in Beijing around Tiananmen, Tiananmen, um, places Yonghe Gong, places like that. Um, places swallows, where there's tiles, and the, the, I mean, they seem to really yeah. like the right. Yeah, the traditional roofs, you know, have these little gaps, um, little holes for them to go into and roost and, and nest. Um, and, of course, that is... Um, That's why they're called Lu Yen, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they like to take up residence in the pagodas or the... Uh, yeah, the, exactly. Uh, okay. So uh, since we've brought this up now, I was intending to ask it a little later, but... Um, uh, you know, on uh, Dunway.org, my old uh, website, um, in 2009, we published a piece by Michael Rank on the dis- disappearing swifts of Beijing, which looked at the problem of the traditional buildings, you know, uh, being vastly reduced in number to be replaced by smooth glass and concrete structures that offered no nesting space for swifts. Is is this a problem? Are the, are the Beijing swifts, the Peking swifts, are they uh, under threat because of the changing urban landscape? Well, certainly, yes, they're declining uh, a lot. And I mean, if we look back, the Swifts are synonymous with Beijing from the 1400s when they were nesting in the the city walls. Um, And ever since then, they've been a big part of of Beijing's culture. And a lot of people know the Swift um, in Beijing. It's one of the most uh, well-known birds. And certainly as the old built traditional buildings that have these nooks and crannies um, that allow them to find nest sites, as these have been torn down and replaced by very modern buildings, as you say, sort of straight sides, no um, sort crannies of crooked features, and, yeah. you know, then uh, they're losing a lot of their nest sites. 
Um, and although some new buildings, for example, if you go to the airport, Terminal 3, uh, you'll often see swifts uh, in the summer. Um, they're nesting under the under some of the underpasses and bridges. Oh, good um, on Norman Foster. Thank so. you, Norman Foster. <laughs> <laughs> the architect of... Yeah, I'm sure he, he had that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but most modern buildings, yeah, not, are not suitable. Um, so the Swift has declined dramatically. Um, we don't know that through hard data because one, one of the, the, the things about uh, China is that we lack... Um, solid data about uh, a lot of things, but, uh, but uh, swifts included, and so we only really have anecdotal evidence about about how many swifts there were, um, you know, ten, twenty, thirty years ago. Um, but I think it is it is obvious even even from that um, that uh, the swift has declined a lot. Um, one thing I would say is that it's not necessarily the case that new buildings are not swift friendly. Uh, there are very cheap. Uh, in fact, almost cost-free ways of making new buildings SWIFT-friendly by incorporating um, suitable holes, nooks, crannies, or SWIFT boxes um, that can come in the form of SWIFT bricks. So it's like a normal brick, but it just has a, a space built in that allows the SWIFT to enter and to, and to nest. Um, and in fact, these have been used in Britain uh, and in other parts of Europe very successfully. Um, and one of the the outcomes of the SWIFT project that we that we did in Beijing um, earlier this year, it's we've now started a conversation with some of Beijing's biggest developers, real estate developers, to explore whether uh, they would be willing to incorporate SWIFT bricks uh, into their design into the designs of new buildings in Beijing. Um, and we're hopeful that that conversation will will make some progress uh, over the next few months oh fantastic well i mean at that point let's kind of segue into the actual project that we um wanted to talk about as our main theme tonight so uh you were involved with a group of scientists and enthusiasts in tracking beijing swifts and their migratory patterns can you tell us how the project started and um you know what happened well, I mean, it, clearly you, you had to have been, I mean, it started with wondering where they go, right? I mean, I, I, I imagine. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, actually, um, that it started in a similar situation like this. A couple of guys with a beer um, talking about birds and, in, in fact, talking about swifts um, in London. I, I was in London for some business, a business meeting, um, and it coincided with a BirdLife International uh, drinks reception to which I was invited. And there... I met a guy called Dick Newell who is absolutely passionate about Swifts in Britain. He runs an organisation especially for Swifts. And he said to me, um, you know, I'd love to know where the, where the Beijing Swift, the Pekinensis subspecies of Swift, um, goes for the winter. You know, um, we've done some geolocating projects in Europe. Do you think we could do one uh, in Beijing? Um, and I knew that the Beijing Birdwatching Society did an annual project to put bands on swifts at the summer palace mm -hmm. now bands are just metal rings that go on the feet and they have a unique number um and um of course to find out where they go you have to recover one uh, and the chances of recovering a dead swift with a with a metal ring on um are, are tiny right vanishingly and, small yeah so the only data they were really getting was when they retrapped them at the same location they would find out a bit about how long they lived uh, and their site loyalty but now um, we live in the age of the internet of things 
Absolutely. Right. So it was a natural progression. Um, and of course, you know, they have experience of trapping the Swifts at the Summer Palace. Uh, so when I came back to Beijing, I had a conversation with them. So what year we, was this now? This, this was last year, mm-hmm. so 2014. Um, and said, so would you be interested in, um, in uh, fitting some geolocators to your Swifts? Um, and hopefully we would find out where they go for the winter and the, and the route that they take. And of course, they jumped at the opportunity um, so then we just had to find the money to pay for the geolocators uh, and arrange for the experts who are um, very experienced at fitting the geolocators, uh, which are just like little backpacks um, that fit onto the Swift. <laughs> so it's a, and what is it? It's a GPS with uh, some kind of transmitter, or what is it? it it's, no, it's, it's not a... Um, Swifts are too small um, to actually carry, the, a, to carry, carry yeah. a GPS transmitter um, at the current technology. I'm sure in a few years the GPS transmitters will become smaller and light enough for a Swift to bear. Um, but at the moment, um, it's only geolocators. Now, what, what they do is record the light levels uh, regularly during the day, and um, you can work out from that um, the latitude, the latitude. exactly, right, right, yeah, right. exactly. So, but you have to retrap them to get that data. Exactly, they don't transmit at all. Right. So you have to retrap the same bird. What um, about longitude? A year later. Um, that that I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they work. I mean, but so <laughs> so, they, they knew they went to some point south, say you know, 45 degrees south latitude, right? I mean, yeah, something yeah. like that. Right. Exactly. When you when you actually see the points on the on the screen of. Um, it goes all over the place and you then have to um, do a lot of technical filters mm-hmm. to filter out a lot of um, data particularly to do with rain um, and an equinox it's also a particularly difficult time to get li- to get locations but yes it, it record restores this data in this tiny backpack and then um, you have to retrap that individual bird fit a couple of crocodile clips to the back of the backpack, uh, and it takes about 30 seconds to download the data onto a computer, hmm. um, and then you can release the Swift again, and, and so, off it goes. So it's the, it started then in the fall, in the autumn of 2014? Well, if we, we fitted the geolocators hmm. in spring 2014. In spring. Right. While they're yeah. here in Beijing, they, they yeah. leave at Before the end of July. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So May um, 2014, we... Um, we, we flew a couple of scientists over who were experienced um, at this from Europe, uh, flew them over to Beijing, and they trained uh, some of the volunteers at the Beijing Birdwatching Society. And then we had several teams of people on the, on the day of the trapping. Um, we were there at the Summer Palace at about four o'clock in the morning um, to set the nets and um, around a, a particular pagoda in the Summer Palace and um, began catching the swifts. Um, and we had um, 30 uh, geolocators to fit. So we had to catch um, more than 30 to uh, to be able to do this. Uh, and we actually did it very quickly. Uh, the teams were very well drilled. Um, we expected that we might have take two days um, of catching, but we actually did it all within about an hour and a half wow. uh, on the morning, yeah, which was, <laughs> which was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And a tribute to the volunteers, actually, of Beijing Birdwatching Society, who were really, really efficient. And so then you, you, you put the geolocators on, and when do the Swifts depart Beijing? 
Well, we put them on in May, mm. um, sort of just towards the end of May, and they leave Beijing uh, around the end of July. So normally around the the last week of July or first week of August, they're, they're gone. Um, they can't stand the humidity either. <laughs> yeah. So as soon as they've done what they need to um, and laid their eggs and raised their young, then they're off. Um, and they go, uh, as Kaiser said, they go west, actually. It's like slightly northwest uh, into Mongolia. Um, and then the surprise was, because we, we always thought they went to Africa, but we didn't know for sure. But the surprise was the route that they took, um, because they actually go north of the Himalayas before heading south. And well, yeah, that makes sense, though. I mean, well, it, you don't uh, want to cross the Himalayas now, do you? I mean, that's the only other real option. Well, there's another bird, in fact, from northeast China that migrates to East Africa every year, the Amur falcon. And that migrates... A falcon? A, a falcon, yeah. And it crosses the Indian Ocean. Ah, right. Because, because, it, yeah. because <laughs> the, the, the Zhenghe route, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize there were birds of prey that migrated. Yeah, well, the, the Amur falcon is, is pretty special. Wow. Um, so that, that migrates to, to Amur is an A-M-U-R. That's in the Amur River. The, Absolutely. Okay, wow. Yes. Yeah, which is the core breeding range. Um, of this falcon so we we assumed that it would probably follow a similar route to the Amur falcon which have been tracked before Um, but no it went north of the Himalayas and it's consistent as well we've looked at all of the tracks now of the um, 13 that we recovered this this spring we recovered 13 of the 30 uh, in one catching session which was a pretty high uh, return rate and all of the 13 follow that same route north of the Himalayas. And then if I'm remembering the map, and I, I read the piece a while ago, but it was, it, I, I seem to remember that it hooks around then uh, once it passes the, 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 the Hindu Kush and then swings south across Afghanistan and and and, uh, right. yeah. and, and Iran and then yeah. across the Persian Gulf and yeah. into across the Arabian Peninsula. Right? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing journey. And in fact, sort of in Central Africa near Congo, um, they often stay for a few days in that area. And that's where they meet the Swifts from Europe. So at the same time, they mingle with the Swifts that come south from the UK and they're a separate Western species, Europe. though. Right? There are different subspecies. Oh, okay. So they can inter- yeah. interbreed. They, well, they could um, potentially and probably do somewhere where the ranges of the two meet mm. somewhere mm. in Central Asia, um, but we don't know enough about that yet. Fascinating. And so, why? Why then do they go to Namibia and to Southwest Africa? Well, I mean, that's, South, a, South that's a very good question because surely they could just go to India right. and survive or Southeast Asia and survive perfectly well. So why do they go um, to to South, Southern Africa? Because it's nice there. That's why they go there. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they like the, the good red wines of the, of the Cape. <laughs> well, it's a very nice place to spend the winter for sure. They want the um, frequent flyer miles. Here, right? yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, I mean, there is a theory that the Swift or- originates in Africa uh-huh. and then gradually... Um, move north to take advantage of the glut of insects in the northern summer and while some went north to western europe others sort of curved a little bit east and went to central yeah, asia central and then others and you know continue even further um, the out of africa theory they call this <laughs> yeah the out of africa theory exactly <laughs> so they're just going home basically that's so that yeah that's the theory um and it, and it, it 
makes sense. Jeremy, they have uh, more and more in common with you. I, uh, well, you know. <laughs> the one, one exciting thing is that um, you know, we now have some, some DNA of these birds, uh, and we're now going to compare the DNA structure of the, the Pekinensis swift with the European swift uh, and with a southern European species called pallid swift. Um, Which is a separate species. Isn't Pallid it? is currently a separate species from common swift. Mm. Yes, and uh, the common swift we get in Europe. Apis, That's just Apis. Eurocentric, isn't it? It is exactly. Um, and Pekinensis is a subspecies of common swift at the moment, but nobody's done the the analysis, uh, the DNA analysis. So who knows? We might find out that Beijing swift is a separate species. Are, how many species of swift are there? <laughs> well, now you're testing me. I mean, um, roughly. A lot. Uh, like I hundreds, say, tens. Pro- probably not a hundred, no, but maybe maybe 50 or 60. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. Right. I'm uh, guessing. Yeah. Tell me about these, these birders in, in Beijing. I, I'm sure you No, 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 wait. Earlier, before we but... get on to that, Kai, sorry. I just, <laughs> let, uh, let's finish the journey of these swifts. Oh, right. Um, okay. So there's uh, the return so, hall, right? <laughs> no. F- well, firstly, the final destination. So um, Namibia and South Africa or just Namibia? Most of them seem to spend most of the winter in Namibia. Um, but some of them do this, our summer. travel around. Well, we call the yeah, summer exactly. in, in, the in your hemisphere. summer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, some do travel around um, to the Cape. Uh, you know, Cape Town. Somebody has reported seeing them there um, at Cape at Table Mountain. Oh. What what uh, part so, of Namibia? I mean, not the Great Namibian Desert. I, I presume they're not in. I mean, that why why go to? Well, a, look, the whole of Namibia is pretty much a desert. Yeah, yeah, no, no, but it's, it's not. It's not the whole country that's desert, though. Pretty I mean, much. I mean, it's no. There's se- a lot of scrub. There's. I mean, you know, that's where it's desert and semi desert. Kaiser, I've spent a lot of time. There, I'm telling you. I know, but I know, but I'm telling you, I've spent a lot of time there. It's dry. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not it's not like, like full s- of trees. Yeah, yeah, but it's not all sandy desert. I mean, there's. Like, it's not dunes. All of it. There's only small parts of it with actual sure, kind of comic sure. book dunes, but I mean it's really dry. The whole country, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know why they go particularly to Namibia. I mean, they do spend um, quite a lot of time in Central Africa. It's a dry uh, heat. That's so why, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they they do. Same reason around. they go to snowbirds go to Arizona. Arizona. Uh, uh, uh. Mm. Yeah. Are we ready to talk about? I mean, for my my question about. This this birding. the birding yeah. people before Can we I, do that let's go back. the, the, the let's journey go, back the journey back okay well I mean on this journey this incredible journey I mean there's one incredible um, fact about these birds is that when the young birds leave the summer palace leave their nest in the, in the summer palace they probably won't land at all f- until they breed which is about three years um, after they're born now, how so, do we know this <laughs> well we. We know through studies of, of uh, roosting uh, swifts, like we know common swift is the only swift that we have proof of that roosts in the air. So it sleeps in the air. Um, we, we suspect that a lot of swifts do that, but the common swift is the only one that we know for sure does that. Now, when the parents are breeding, sometimes they will come into the nest to sleep um, particularly if they've got eggs or very young birds to keep them warm and mm-hmm. so on. Um, but if they're not breeding, they will just fly high uh, at night, effectively go on autopilot um, and fly in a, a sort of circle or, or sometimes slightly into the wind um, just to sort of hang right. in the wind. Um, to Amazing. Sleep. So they so flap. can they still flap their wings while they're sleeping? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, wow. I th- and it's it's quite it's different to our sleep in the sense that a smaller portion of their brain shuts down. So you know, there are a lot of animals that do that. They sleep with half the brain at one po- at, at a time, right? Yeah, exactly. So their sleep is a slightly different sleep to what we're Our used sleep. to. Yeah. Sounds like quite a cool kind of sleep. Um, <laughs> so three years without landing for yeah. the young Swifts. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which is phenomenal. You know, it's... Uh, and, I, and I once spoke to a, an Australian uh, professor, Tim Flannery. Um, he's quite a famous Australian professor about Swifts. And he said they're at the vanguard of evolution. Um, yeah, he said there are species that rely uh, 100% on the oceans. There are species that rely 100% on the land. But there's no species yet that 100% airborne, is 100% right. airborne. So, yeah. But he said, you know, in, in a few million years... He, we he will felt, catch up with the Swifts. Well, <laughs> uh. <laughs> he felt it was likely that Swifts would give birth to live young in the air rather than lay eggs. Um, he said in, in a few hundred years. A few hundred million. Oh, a hundred, hundred million. Okay, okay, I was going to say. <laughs> if we don't kill them, um, k- kill them all off first. Yeah, exactly. uh, that yeah. I want to see. I mean, do they need? Yeah. An, 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 ha, ha, but you know, it's, it's interesting. They actually they eat, they mate, they sleep. They, I mean, they do all activities airborne. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And when, even when they drink, they, I mean, you've probably sometimes seen them over a lake. They will swoop down very low with their mouth wide open mm-hmm. and just take a little sip of water um, before flying off again. So even drinking, um, you know, they, they stay airborne. There so. must be places along their route where, where the insects become very scarce. I mean, they're crossing the whole central part of, of Saudi Arabia, of, of, of the Arabian Peninsula. It's not something you'd even if they're going 110 miles an hour or whatever however fast it is that they're going it, it's going to take a while yeah sure i mean they they do fly fast um and i think they can go several days without food wow, uh, okay. if necessary um you really are at so the evolutionary vanguard they, yeah i mean endurance and wow yeah is, is amazing yeah but amazing birds so uh, just quickly then, before we move on, the, so the journey back, when do they leave Namibia, South Africa? Um, they will probably leave Namibia, South Africa area quite early, say, for example, um, February. Um, and then they eventually get to Beijing sort of late April, early May. Um, and I think the particularly the last part of the journey um, through Mongolia to Beijing is done extremely fast. So they, they stop at a few places, so in Central Africa, um, and they'll stop again sort of in Central Asia uh, for a few days each. To feed. To feed up, mm. yeah, check in places the, where they're... Yeah, in. check out Bukhara and Samarkand. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Those are worth stopping at. And... <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they, they do have a few regular sites where they spend a bit more time. Um, and then, that, as I say, that last leg from Central Asia into Beijing, it is done very, very fast. So they obviously don't think there's much in Mongolia. Right, now to see there. <laughs> okay, so I have two two more questions about the, the, the migration before I let Kaiser move us on. Which I can't is, remember what I was going to ask about, but go on. Um, you were going to ask about the, the birding community. Community of Beijing, um, right, that's it. Uh, one is how high do they fly, and how f- second is how fast do they fly? Do we know those things? Um. Yes, I mean, there are studies been done on this. I mean, in terms of how high they fly, they spend most of their time actually not not very high, um, just a few hundred metres. Um, yeah, that's where a lot of the insects are uh, they're feeding on. 
um, but they can fly very high and certainly when they're when they're uh, roosting at night they will they will go up to, to a much greater height and also on migration um, they will they will fly higher as well like Don't, how high yeah in terms of how high you're <laughs> you're testing my uh, my knowledge I would I would estimate that it's you know a few thousand meters so maybe um, three or four thousand meters is probably a typical height for migration right. um, but I, I think there are some studies on this I think some of the data that they get from the geolocators does um, give them an indication at least of, of height if not something that's very accurate right, okay that's and gonna what be about ab- the above speed? most cloud cover so you would know <laughs> what about the speed do we do we know how fast they fly well again that that varies but um, you know you're looking at 60 60 miles an hour i'd have thought is a sort of um a decent uh migration speed that's yeah, close um, to close on 100 kilometers an yeah, hour. yeah yeah somewhere around that i mean it will vary they, they don't call them swifts for nothing man mm, yeah, that's <laughs> okay so kaiser that, that was it for you okay yeah so I'm about these birders the of beijing yeah. i mean you know obviously the china has had something of a fraught relation with our fine feathered friends um you know we've all heard those stories about the 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 poor sparrows of beijing suffering under under mao and um you know he thought they were eating all the grain and away with all pests and all that and uh, and, uh you know there we of course we we love our pigeons here but i i i guess i was not aware until i had read an article that jonathan franzen had written in 2008 in the new yorker um nearly talking about a birding community um i guess i've never quite understood birding i mean I, birds are magnificent I, I i just can't imagine getting myself out of bed and you know <laughs> sitting very quietly and waiting there with a pair of binoculars just to tick one off my list um what 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 is the typical profile of a beijing birder who who, who, who where what walks of life do they come from and what yeah. compels and did they learn this from abroad did it emerge indigenously what um, that's an interesting question. I, I think in my experience, uh, I mean, in the Birding Beijing group, we, we now have about 140 members, most of whom are, are Chinese. Um, we have a few expats as well from various countries. But the, the demographic is different to to where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where I'm from, when I was growing up as a birder, it was 99% male. Hmm. Um uh, it was considered uh, a bit geeky. Um, anorak, perhaps, anorak. was the term, <laughs> term of your youth. And yeah. your You're obviously familiar with that. <laughs> um, you, you have to, to explain that to me. An anorak is anybody with some kind of, I mean, a train spotter, which is a very British phenomenon, is, that I guess, the classic anorak. It's somebody with a really dorky hobby, I guess, that's obsessive about it. Is that, would that be yeah, right, Terry? Yeah, exactly. It's a yeah. good word, I'll... I'll, I'll put that one in my pocket <laughs> yeah I, I don't i don't think people use that word anymore but anyway but um yeah it was certainly you know very male dominated um and generally uh middle-aged men as well i would say in britain but here it's very different um in my experience there's just as many uh girls and ladies interested in birding as men and boys um it's very much a family pursuit so it's not uncommon if you do come across birders, um, that it'll be a family hmm. um, out together. Um, so that it's it's a different type um, of birding. And um, 
in terms of how they got into it, I think it's certainly, you know, it's come from the West. Uh, I think um, the hobby of birding, you know, began in, in Britain and, and America. Um, it's very popular now in, in particularly in countries like the Netherlands and Scandinavia. Um, and it's sort of caught on from there, I would say. I mean, the numbers are still vastly lower. So, you know, just to give you an example of that, in Britain we have 60 million people, 1.3 million are members of the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, so our national bird organisation. Um, that's a, that's a uh, good percentage. That's a, yeah, it's a very high percentage. That's um, well over, I mean, it's close close, close to 2%. Yeah, so, and, and in Beijing, you know, the population of 30 million um, I'm guessing. Yeah, Looking 20, at 20, you for, by now, maybe. Yeah, sure. yeah. 22 million. 20 um, is the number. I know 20 is the yeah, official yeah, number. Yeah, but, yeah, it's probably 30. <laughs> but um, even if you say 20, you know, that's a third of the population of the UK. So if it was on a par, you know, there would be sort of 400,000 members of the bird organization in Beijing. Uh, the reality is that there are a few hundred, three or 400 mm-hmm. uh, okay. members. So... The the numbers are, are very very low compared to the West, but and that's really a function of the fact that to become a birdie you need um, you need a little bit of money to buy some binoculars um, and a book uh, and a perhaps, car probably really yeah, yeah. transport certainly mm. you that's need issue, it more yeah. in Beijing mm. yeah than than you do in other places, um, but also leisure time. So I think um, you know it's only relatively recently that people have had enough leisure time. To, that, that would then make birding a viable hobby. Um, what drives the passion in the Chinese birder? What, what is the, the... Is it... Do you, do you find that the impulse arises from the same sort of... the, the, same, the same things that it does from in, in, in the West? I think it's slightly different uh, in that the, the people that I've spoken to um, say that they never had any interaction with nature... Uh, when they were a child um, and something has opened their eyes to that whether it be some photographs they've seen or an article they've read mm. something has awakened that interest in in the environment and they feel like they've got a lot of catching up to do right. um, because they feel there was a real gap in their education conservationism uh, an aesthetic thing too i mean birds are, are often depicted in chinese art right I mean, they are absolutely the first thing you yeah. learn to paint cranes, um, cranes, especially. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's it, it for a lot of people, it's it's sort of um, filling a gap uh, from their childhood, perhaps uh, that they never experienced. Um, whereas, you know, in my country, at least, you know, it's very common for for young boys and girls to be out in the countryside and playing around and learning a bit about birds uh, and nature. So. I think it's it's slightly different, yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, you know, we we did have this this fraught relationship, and maybe we can talk about uh, one manifestation of of that recently in the run up to the parade. Something that got a lot yeah, of yeah. Why don't we get into that? So, um, I mean, Terry, I think you uh, were quoted, and I don't, I can't remember if you wrote something, but you were certainly quoted in a, a Science Insider article by a, another previous Seneca guest, Christina Larson about the recent military parade in Beijing and what seemed to have happened was that, I mean, there were reports of uh, 
the authorities bringing monkeys to destroy birds' nests to prevent them, you know, fouling up the airplanes, as it were, jet engines or whatever. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you, what happened? And was this a real? Um, uh, did, did did this have a seriously negative effect on Beijing's bird life? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the first article I saw about this um, suggested that birds were being eradicated from the city centre ahead of the parade. Um, using monkeys. You, you Well, partly using monkeys um, to climb trees and Trained destroy monkeys. nests. <laughs> yeah. Trained monkeys. Trained monkeys. It's just the ring of an urban myth to it. Yeah. Well, sort of yeah. like that, 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 that story that ran in Slate not long ago about people running over people they hit just to make sure that they were dead. Because but, but, I mean, this was actually reported in the Chinese press, was it not? I, it, I it was. Recall. The People's yeah. Daily, I think, yeah, wrote yeah. proudly how they were using these very clever trained monkeys. To, exactly. Right? I think the head of the unit was was very proud of yeah. his monkeys. Um, <laughs> this was the, the only unit of its kind in the world. <laughs> the, um, the trained monkey bird extermination unit of the PLA. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the first article I read said that it was a widespread campaign across the city centre. Um, a, a different article I read was said that it was focused on military airfields. Um, and so, you know, China's opaque and we don't necessarily know uh, exactly the real story. And you didn't see any of the monkeys, did you? I, I never saw any no. of the monkeys. I never saw anybody um, chasing away birds from, from certainly around where I live. Um, so it's difficult to know exactly what the truth behind that story was. Um, but I think there's no doubt that there were... Um, activities to to keep birds away from military aircraft and military airfields and i think that's you know that's normal practice um i mean there there is a risk to aircraft from bird strikes i had a friend i just have to have to mention this it's the only time (laughs) where it's actually going to segue naturally i had a friend in college whose job first job out of college was working at a jet engine manufacturer where he was in charge of a device called the poultry cannon, which would fire frozen chickens into jet engines. That's I mean that's what he did. <laughs> what? To, right. For what purpose? To see to test them to see right how well they could handle <laughs> inhaling large birds like oh, you know. Okay. Yeah. It's like, well, let's, let's get an 18-pound turkey that's roughly the size of a Canada goose, and here we go. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's quite a job. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, uh, yeah, there yeah, is a risk. I mean, so uh, what, I mean, there are not exactly huge birds in Beijing. I mean, we do not see very large birds in Beijing. Exactly. So the risk... The risk so what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. The risk of bird strikes, um, or, or at least the, the dangers of bird strikes, come from larger birds like geese right. um, and gulls and birds like that. These are birds that we don't really have very many of in Beijing. Exactly. And certainly not around the airports. Um now, the sad thing is that um, if you fly into Beijing Airport or indeed uh, many other airports around China, you will see lines and lines of these so-called mist nets, uh, which are, are there to to stop birds. Now, these nets um, are only strong enough to stop small birds. So they're trapping things like sparrows, oh. larks, um, other migratory birds that, that might be using the 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 grassland around the runway as a as a stopover um and they're not 
you know, affecting they're not doing anything. The they're not effective against large, large birds. birds. Right. Exactly. So it's um, it is an issue that uh, it's it's one that's been on my to do list for some time. Um, is to I think it may not be too late to get President Obama to bring this up with Xi Jinping. <laughs> I mean, he, may, he may be able to get this onto the agenda. If you've agenda, got a segue so. into Obama, then uh, well, uh, <laughs> Bill Bishop, uh, another former Seneca guest, is apparently DC, he right. sent his email newsletter. He said he's going to the dinner in D.C. So, right. uh, Bill, if you're listening, please uh, your six words with Xi Jinping. Can you bring up the bird, the mist nest, yeah. mist nets? Because it's yeah. something that, you know, we don't see in other countries. Um, really? And there are lots of ways of, of controlling birds at airports. I mean, every airport in the world, you know, faces well, a risk. What are the other ways? Well, there are, there are non-lethal <clears throat> ways, for example. Well, the first, of course, is, is habitat management so that you, you don't um, create a habitat that's attractive to wild birds around the airport. Um, and that's fairly easy to do. Uh, then there are other ways to keep birds away. It just, hardly just as seems like it's very do. attractive to birds to begin with here. Well, no. <laughs> the area around the airport. I, won't, yeah. I don't want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> but you might get you know larks and things stopping off mm. there. It's, um, they like grass. Um, but uh, you know, just as farmers keep birds off their land by using you know sounds, things that imitate shotguns and um, you know, that type of of activity. There's also uh, you can use falcons or you know, to uh, keep smaller birds away. So there are lots of ways of controlling birds in an airport environment. And, um, you know, most other countries use non-lethal ways that tackle the serious risk, which is big birds. Um, you know, I, I don't see anywhere else these lines and lines of mist nets to stop small birds. I had never noticed this. Had had, had you noticed this before? No. No, no, no. Well, have a look next time you you fly. (laughs) I will be flying out of P3 soon. I'll I'll have a look for them. have a look. So uh, let's let's move on to another depressing topic, um, which is the Winter Olympics. So um, uh, I think it was uh, something you wrote, which I think I read on the Rare Bird Alert website first. Uh, about okay. the Winter Olympics in uh, 2022 in Beijing uh, and uh, possible threats to biodiversity in the area around the venue, which is a little bit north of Beijing. Um, oh, in, Zhangjiakou also. Uh, in, in, in Hebei, around Zhangjiakou, right. uh, which is an area I know quite well because I've, I've done a lot of mountain walking and hiking around it's there. It's a beautiful I mean, it's, it's a, a really lot of amazing. places. You, uh, you go up that highway and suddenly you're on the, the, the Mongolian plateau. It's just yeah. such a strange, surreal and there's experience. Some pretty, I mean, yeah. there's some fairly big mountains there too by, you know, other countries' standards, big yeah. mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what is the problem with the Beijing Winter Olympics? Well, um, it turns out that the the plans for the the downhill ski slope uh, and part of the Olympic Village um, show that the 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 area that they're going to use to build the ski slope is um, right in the middle of a, a national nature reserve, uh, Songshan, uh, in Yanqing County, mm-hmm. um, and this is one of two national nature reserves in Beijing and uh, what the government is doing is um, altering the boundaries of the nature reserve so um, 
what to to mitigate the effect they're redrawing uh, the boundary to make the National Nature Reserve 30% bigger. Um, but of course, they're sacrificing this particular part, which is one of the most biodiverse parts of the National Nature Reserve. And it contains a few um, endangered plants uh, and also some very range-restricted birds as well. Um, so it's um, it's going to affect, obviously, negatively uh this this wildlife um they'll be cutting down trees um they'll be uh obviously affecting the grass uh, there'll be all sorts of chemicals that are put on the grass um and so you know even afterwards um even if they they don't use it as a ski slope anymore it's going to not recover to to its former former state so um there's going to be a, a adverse effect on on the national nature reserve um now this apparently uh breaks chinese law um there was a new environment protection law uh that came into effect uh in fact at the beginning of this year and well, let's um, redraw the boundaries of the law yeah <laughs> Yes. This is, I w- wish to remind you, M- Mr. Kuo, this is a country under rule of law. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, we know the the fuss that was made about rule of law at the plenum yes, uh, last year. And I think there was a quote from uh, Xi Jinping that uh, they would come down uh, with an iron fist on anyone who violated the law with no exceptions. Um, and under this the, is one of them. Well, and under <laughs> the law, um, you cannot alter the boundaries of a, a national nature reserve without uh, a full assessment of the, the biodiversity, the impacts, uh, a consultation. And that there are four steps that you have to go through. Um, is, is the MEP, that hopelessly toothless organization, able to do anything about that? Is it even in the, the jurisdiction of the I don't suppose it is. I think it's probably the State Forestry right. Administration, yeah, which I'm sure is even more powerful. Right? <laughs> um, well, of course, if if the government makes a decision about where the Olympics are going to be, I, I don't think there's any part of government that would be able to um, right. uh, oppose that. Um, but I think the more the more serious point, I mean, is that is that um, you we can argue about the. Uh, the quality of the biodiversity that's in Songshan Nature Reserve, but the more important point is the precedent it sets, because if the national government, if the Beijing government can, um, you know, break this law so early into its uh, into its enactment, um, it gives it emboldens provinces that perhaps have national nature reserves in uh, in their own areas mm. that they may want to um, alter the boundaries for their own purposes. And I think you know the, the precedent that it sets very early on in the enactment of this law is a very dangerous one. So, sort of wider than the the point about the harm to Songshan Nature Reserve itself is this broader point about uh, right. about the yeah incentive. I mean, but one one can hope that this is just just so, something for something like the Olympics, and the, that they would suffer no no other. Violations of the right, right, right. <laughs> This is an exceptional exception. One would hope. You, you, you still have hope. I still have hope. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you're so naive, Kaiser. <laughs> I mean, it's good to have you back, Jeremy. The, the sad thing is that yeah, it's unnecessary because there are other mountains uh, around 
that could host the downhill ski slope that do not have the biodiversity mm-hmm. of Shan. Mm-hmm. And how about like putting it somewhere where there's snow? That would well, be a, <laughs> that would be a nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ah well. Let's uh, move on to to recommendations now. Um, you know, as you know, Terry, uh, this is something that we do at, at the end of every show, and uh, we generally start with, with 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 Jeremy. So why don't we, as as is our practice. Uh, yeah, I, you know what? I, I'm going to recommend uh, Terry's website, birdingbeijing.com. Okay. Uh, and if you are In the full Anorak, if, uh, the WeChat group, <laughs> uh, I guess associated with it, or I, I don't know if it's under your control, but there's a WeChat group if you are really into birds in Beijing um, and want the full like hose pipe of bird enthusiasts, uh, kind of daily tweets not tweets but <laughs> wechat comments i was whatever. wondering whether you would say tweets <laughs> um then I, I would recommend that but uh yeah uh, you know and i think if you're not somebody who likes bird watching um i would like to explain just very quickly my rationale for why you should be interested in it um i grew up in south africa where we go on safari we don't call it that but we go you know to the bush and look at big wild animals a lot like um, yeah. and uh, the thing is after you've seen an elephant like 20 times it's just another elephant um, and if you're kind of keen on wildlife you start to realize that birds are amazing because you can I mean in downtown New York and London you can be a bird watcher and you can see these wild animals uh, inhabiting all kinds of different environments. The rare and, Macedonian rock dove. Right? And uh, it, 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 it's... The pigeon. You right? just have to start, like, recognizing two and then three and then four. That's the gateway drug, probably is the swift. And then you you kind of can get into birding. It's not such a weird hobby. So okay, I guess my final recommendation is just birding as a hobby. It's, it's uh, If you're not familiar with it, I would recommend you... Start paying attention. So buy a bird book first. Terry Townsend, yours. Well, well said, Jeremy. I'm glad you said that, not me. I couldn't possibly have said that. Um, I think I have two um, websites, actually, to look at. Uh, one is uh, Action for Swifts, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about uh, the Swift, which has been the main topic of our discussion tonight. Um, and it's all about, it's got amazing, full of amazing facts about Swifts. Uh, like we've talked about the three-year flight of the young ones and where they had the distances they travel and so on, and also a lot about their decline in Europe uh, and elsewhere and what we can do to stop that decline. Are, are um, they victim of the um, the lime sticks and the, the netting in, in, in the Mediterranean? No, because no. they don't land. They don't land, <laughs> right. That's, that's right, they don't land. So, they avoid uh, continental so again, Europe. Once again, yeah. they are at the evolutionary <laughs> vanguard. Smart, yeah. right? smart, right? <laughs> um, they avoid uh, Cyprus. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they know what they're doing. And the second um, website is actually the British Trust for Ornithology. Um, and they do a lot of studies, uh, geolocations and GPS tracking of, of different species, mm. um, including the cuckoo. Uh, and I want to just mention the cuckoo briefly because I can exclusively reveal on this podcast that we're in discussions with the British Trust for Ornithology about tagging some Beijing cuckoos. Wow. Uh, because we, wow. we don't know where they go either. Ah. <laughs> uh, didn't he Beijing cuckoo? Didn't he go to uh, Morganshan and then left for England? Oh no, that's Shanghai cuckoo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that's an inside joke. <laughs> well, uh, not so inside. You can Google that. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so um, so yes, so we we're hopeful that um, next year we will be able to trap some Beijing cuckoos and fit some little backpacks, and this time they will be GPS Enabled. transmitters. Right, oh, yeah, because they're big enough to they're big to enough wear the to GPS carry. Yeah. exactly. Um, and it's a very cool project they've done with cuckoos in in Britain, where they get schools to to name the cuckoos, uh, and then they can follow their progress and learn about... Harry, uh, yeah, the, exactly. the neighbourhood cuckoo, cuckoo or, where did he go? Exactly. Yeah. So hopefully we can incorporate that into the work that we're doing with Beijing schools so we can get some Beijing school children to name these cuckoos uh, and learn about the the journeys that they that they take and, and the threats that they face along the way. Mm. So So that's my recommendation. I'm going to make one that's also peripherally related to bird watching, uh, it, just because the author of this particular novel, which I'm recommending, is an avid birder himself and has written a lot about it, including, I mean, I think I made reference to him earlier and to that 2008 article that he wrote about birding in and around Shanghai, Jonathan Franzen's new novel, Purity, which is tremendously good. It is an, an indescribably wonderfully complex and rich yarn that spans, you know, a, a, a number of decades from before the fall of the, the Berlin Wall. Um, well, it's it's just great. He's a tremendously good storyteller. Uh, and yeah, there is even a moment of, of, of bird watching in the book as there is in every book that he's ever written. Um, my, my, my second recommendation, though, is the BBC has just put out something. I think it just went out up today. Uh, you can just Google for cement and pig production reveal China's big changes. And it's just this great... A amalgamation of 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 of, of um, blow you away kind of stats. The probably most I don't of, say pig and blow in the same <laughs> sentence today. Kaiser. Right, not this today. Is, right, Cameron right. Piggate right. has just. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how weird is that? I mean, what did he? What did he? When he was watching Black Mirror, did he? Did he? You know what I mean? You, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Right, yeah, right, right, yeah, right. yeah. Did he? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. okay. So yeah. So it's um the BBC's cement and pig production revealed China's big changes, and it will, um, it'll really just like. Fuck your no no I mean uh, let's see it, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing it's a, uh, it, it shows for example urban centers of over a million from 1970 to 2030 you can just sort of slide a timeline and just see these new urban centers that that are you know how much how, how, how many, many pigs and right, how, right, how much right, how many how many pigs and uh, uh, there's a uh, there's a uh, uh, time lapse video of a skyscraper going up in 19 days in 90 seconds it's it's pretty astonishing three floors uh, a day. Um, wow. something like that. Uh, a skyscraper. Let's see. There's a, st- a graph showing like outbound tourism from China compared to other countries. Astonishing. And then, of course, the number of pigs. And uh, just in case somebody asks you tomorrow, it was 735 million pigs slaughtered for food in in 2014. Um, wow. Guess how many in the U.S., Jeremy? Most of them in in your part of the country. In Tennessee, oh yeah, well in Car- North, South Carolina, in, 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 right, right. I, I have no idea. Only 106 million. Wow. Yeah. Well, so yeah, this yeah. is Polk Nation, right? Yeah. Seven times as many pigs slaughtered in the United States, um, in in China. That's more than so. It's more per capita pork consumption in China than in the United States. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, on that happy note. <laughs> I, wait, before you sign off, I, Kaiser, okay. I, I would just like to thank you for something, which is. Um, 
that uh, as I mean, I'm not a proper birder like Terry. I, I, I'm a sort of a, a real amateur. Um, but it is a hobby I've had since I was a, a, a young boy. And uh, even in South Africa, where we have quite an active birdwashing culture, people who aren't birders, often the response when they find you're a bird is like, <laughs> yeah, I like birds, but not the kind with the feathers. Um, and I'd really like to thank you for not making that joke as a non-birder. <laughs> I, I, I actually, so here, I mean, you, you, I, I think that it's a really, really cool, dignified hobby. I mean, it, it is. It, it, it is. It and is. I think that it, there's I'll quite you on that. There's no, there's there's cool this and dignified. No, it's it's there's this sort of quietude that I really like about it. It's like fishing without killing animals. Right. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. You get the sort of chi of level dawn and, and yep, con- communing with nature. Maybe we can a do a live podcast way. from uh, from me, you, and Reservoir or something as um, we bird. As we're birding, it all yeah. done in hushed whispers yeah. like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, on. David Attenborough. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see you next week on the Seneca Podcast. Take care, folks. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>